Welcome to the 60th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Each Sunday night, we post an episode rotating in order. This week's show, Coronavirus the Truth, followed by Breaking the Rules with a new guest each time. Then Unfiltered with Zubin Demania, aka ZDog MD, joining the two of us. And finally, diving deep in exploration into controversial healthcare topics of major importance. You can find links to all the episodes along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, when it comes to COVID-19, our nation is in a bit of a holding pattern. Infections are rising as the newest Omicron variant proves more transmissible than the last, but hospitalizations and deaths remain relatively low compared to when Delta was the dominant strain. About two thirds of people have received the first two shots and almost half of them have obtained a vaccine booster, but those numbers have been relatively unchanged for months. Total deaths now are just shy of a million. Like planes in a line for takeoff, we're seeing each new viral strain to be slightly more transmissible than the one before it. BA.2, which have been dominant in other parts of the world, now has replaced the original Omicron strain that was called BA.1 in the US. And we're seeing a new offshoot. It's called BA.2.12.1, which is even more transmissible. and now accounts for over a quarter of the cases and it's two is likely to become dominant. Nine in 10 Americans perceive the current pandemic as manageable although parents of kids under the age of six and families with someone on immunosuppression or cancer chemotherapy continue to perceive the risks as relatively large and little is likely to change, at least in the near future. Can you explain the shifting landscape relative to masking on planes and public transportation? Jeremy, over the past month, we saw a back and forth when it came to mandating masks for passengers. First, the CDC extended its mask mandate through May 3rd. But then a federal judge in Florida ruled that the CDC had exceeded its authority in mandating masks for travelers. Within hours, all major airlines removed the requirement for people on their planes, although anyone who chose, of course, could continue to wear one A few days later, the CDC requested that the Department of Justice appeal the ruling, which it did. However, this type of appeal usually takes three months. And as such, by the time it's resolved, I predict that mask requirements in US flights will be a thing of the past. Having said that, since the jurisdiction of the federal court 
is only for flights inside our country, international flights will still be subject to the various restrictions imposed by various countries. And some of them, like Canada, have yet to remove the mask mandate. Robbie, can you tell listeners more about new strains being talked about in the news? Jeremy, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing both new variants and what's called subvariants of Omicron. An example is this BA.2.12.1. Although there's no hard line between the two categories, new variants have a greater number of mutations than subvariants, which more closely resemble the original strain, in this case, BA.2. The recent progression we've seen was that Delta was followed by BA.1, then BA.2, and now this subvariant. Across the United States, more than 70% of cases are currently the BA.2, with a mere 6%, the original BA.1, that dominated only a month ago. And the rest of the new cases, those are BA.2.12.1. But for listeners whose heads are spinning with all these numbers and dots, let me make it simple. The viral world is straightforward. More transmissible variants and subvariants like BA.2 and now BA.2.12.1 defeat less transmissible ones like BA.1. The good part is that at least so far, the newer variants aren't any more lethal than the previous ones. And the current vaccines plus boosters continue to protect against severe disease from all of them. Finally, of course, making matters more complex, there are two new variants out there. One's called BA.4 and one BA.5. They've been identified in multiple African and European nations. And if they end up being more transmissible than even BA.1.12.1, then we can expect they'll replace the current ones. Recent research studies of people's blood have shown that 60% of Americans already have had COVID-19. As Omicron continues to evolve into ever more transmissible strains and subvariants, we can predict that the percentage will rise. But as long as there's broad antibody protection in people who become infected, the chances are that we're not going to see the spike in hospitalizations and deaths that we previously encountered when it came to Delta. Robbie, we recently heard that Kamala Harris, the Vice President of the United States, tested positive for COVID-19 but didn't have any symptoms. Uh, Does this mean she's not contagious? Jerry, she's a great example of the point we just discussed about the growing transmissibility of the virus. As you point out, she did test positive, although she was asymptomatic at the time, and she's begun treatment with the new five-day oral antiviral medication, Paxlovid. Unfortunately, although asymptomatic and on medication, she's likely to be contagious. And that is what makes it so hard to control the spread of this virus. Without the frequent testing in the White House, she might never have known she had COVID. And of course, then she would have spread it to dozens of other people. The data on asymptomatic transmission comes from what is called 
a deliberate infection trial. It was conducted at the Imperial College in London. In this study, volunteers were deliberately exposed to the COVID virus, and then they were closely monitored. On a daily basis, the amount of virus in their airways, which is the best predictor of contagiousness, was measured. And contrary to what might have been predicted, there was no relationship between the magnitude of the viral load and the presence of severity of symptoms. This type of deliberate infection trial is highly controversial and debated by medical ethicists. On one hand, it provides definitive and quantifiable information on disease that impacts millions of people. On the other hand, despite testing it only on young individuals, unlikely to become severely ill and using a low dose that's least likely to harm them, that risk always exists. For this reason, deliberate infection trials are not currently being done in the United States. In this particular study, 36 adults aged 18 to 29 were given the lowest amount of virus that had been shown to produce infection. Among the participants, symptoms began on average two days after contact with the virus, which is much earlier than previously believed. The viral loads peaked at five days after infection with vi live virus being present in people's noses for a total of 6.5 days on average. 18 people became infected with 16 individuals developing mild to moderate cold-like symptoms, such as stuffy or runny nose, sneezing and sore throat. But none of them experienced severe symptoms, although 13 people did temporarily lose their sense of smell. Scientists still don't know why 16 of the people didn't have any pre-existing antibodies in their blood, but still didn't become infected despite direct viral exposure. And unexpectedly, some individuals who had measurable viral loads, which would be indicative of active infection, had negative PCR tests considered the gold standard for clinical diagnosis. You know, Jeremy, two years into this pandemic, a myriad of mysteries persist when it comes to this virus. It's gonna be decades before we fully understand everything that has happened. Robbie, a listener asked how most Americans are now perceiving the current pandemic given that restrictions are rapidly being lifted. Any new findings? Jeremy, overall, 90% of Americans say that COVID isn't a crisis today. In an Axios poll of over 1,000 individuals, 73% reported that they thought COVID remained a problem, but that it was manageable. And on top of that, an additional 17% said COVID wasn't a problem at all. And only 9% of respondents called it a crisis. There was, the, of course, the usual split by political affiliation with 16% of Democrats labeling it a serious crisis and only 3% of Republicans doing so. But both of those numbers are extremely low compared to the past and unlikely to lead people to take serious steps to socially distance themselves from others. Of course, with 
people not seeing this virus as highly dangerous, there's the risk that they won't get the vaccinations and boosters needed to maintain the current level of immunity in the future. And come next winter, not only will the cases soared, but without this added protection, so will hospitalizations and deaths. The hope in the past had been that herd immunity would eliminate the virus. That's not going to happen. These new variants are too transmissible and capable of breaking through. Vaccinations, at least at transmitting disease, although as we said earlier, the vaccines continue to protect against severe illness. We shouldn't forget that the reason COVID isn't a crisis right now is that level of protection and it has nothing to do with the virus. Should that level of protection diminish, we can expect the crisis to return. Robbie, as you know, I'm very interested in new developments relative to young kids. What's new? Jeremy, as you can imagine, I've heard from quite a number of parents of kids under the age of six who had travel plans this summer and are now afraid of going onto planes when the majority of people won't be wearing a mask. They want to know when will the vaccine be available for their sons and daughters. And now we have an answer, at least the possibility of an answer. Moderna has now submitted a request to the FDA for emergency use authorization for its vaccine in kids six months to six years. The dose they're using is low, 25 micrograms, and the protection it produces is far less than we've seen in older kids and adults. Efficacy was 43.7% for children six months to two years and 37.5% in kids two to six. However, the majority of the cases were mild and none were severe. As we said in the last Coronavirus The Truth program, the data from Pfizer's trial, not the Moderna we just talked about, but the Pfizer trial in this age group showed even poorer results. And the company withdrew its request for emergency use authorization. Pfizer is banking on immunity rising following a booster shot in this age group, and its CEO hopes to submit data on a three-shot approach to the FDA come June. At this point, it's not clear what the FDA will decide. You remember way back in 2020, that the FDA set a standard of around 60% efficiency against which vaccine effectiveness would be judged. And using that number, the current results wouldn't get over that hurdle. But on the other hand, back then we didn't differentiate protection from infection versus protection against severe disease. And using avoiding severe disease as the standard, now suddenly the Moderna data is quite encouraging with note kids in this six month to five year age group having the need for hospitalization or dying. 
Moving up in age group, the data on vaccinations in five to 11-year-old kids remains positive. Overall, vaccinations in this age group decreased the risk of a kid needing hospitalization from COVID in half. And that's according to a recently released CDC report. And in a different study, Pfizer announced that a booster in children five to 11 would ra had raised the antibody levels sixfold based upon blood samples from 140 children. It's clear that circulating blood antibody levels fall after vaccination against this coronavirus, just as they do against some other vaccines. Whether that means that kids need the additional protection provided by the booster shot to avoid serious illness, that is still not clear. Most of the clinical trials have involved a small number of kids so as to minimize the risk. And that doesn't allow statistically significant conclusions to be reached about unlikely events, such as a young child needing hospitalization or death in this age group. Parents like you are facing two sets of risks, both of which fortunately are relatively uncommon. The first is that their child will become very sick from COVID and require hospitalizations and face the possibility of dying. As such as a parent, you desperately want a vaccine to become available. But simultaneously, you're very protective of your kid, particularly when they're so young and seemingly vulnerable. And you have appropriate fears for their safety. As a result, when we look at the kids age five to 11, only 35% of them have been vaccinated in the United States. And it's likely that the percentage in this younger group, six months to six years, would be smaller given the parental fear that's associated with a new vaccine being administered to a child of this age. And all of that, of course, assumes that emergency use authorization is granted. Robert, you've written about the psychological and mental health issues workers are facing. Can you provide more details around what's happening? Jeremy, last year, I wrote in Forbes an article that predicted that healthcare workers would experience a spike in PTSD once COVID slowed down, similar to what soldiers experience not during the heat of the battle, but when the war is over. And that's exactly what we're now seeing based on a recent report from the Duke University School of Medicine. According to the lead researcher, the same experience of what people have called moral injury is at the heart. This is the guilt a person feels for failing to meet the needs of another human and being able to save their lives. Rather than perceiving the failure as beyond their control, they feel it personally and take responsibility at their own psychological risk. In this study, researchers compared the responses of 2,099 medical personnel who cared for patients with COVID to 618 combat veterans who served after 9-11. The outcomes were similar with the majority experiencing psychological discomfort in both groups. Of interest, 51% of healthcare workers and 46% of veterans reported feeling betrayed 
They felt let down by their supervisors and by their institutions. But in addition, healthcare workers felt betrayed by their patients who had not taken the steps needed to maximize their health prior to the pandemic or to protect themselves against becoming severely ill once it began. And these healthcare professionals pointed not only to things like vaccination and mask wearing, but also to overall health and avoidance of chronic disease. As a result, the healthcare workers felt that they and their families were experiencing unnecessary and inappropriate danger. They blamed their patients for not doing their parts. It's easy to see similarities between the veterans who risked their lives in places like Afghanistan to healthcare workers in American hospitals. Both felt overwhelmed with the difficulty of the task. They felt unsupported in their efforts and felt like they had worked tirelessly when others seemed to be coasting. The result for both groups was diminished satisfaction, a loss of purpose, and profound disillusionment. Both the military and medicine have cultures which expressing fear and admitting weakness are seen negatively. As a result, the psychological challenges fester and they ultimately spill over. Hopefully doctors will now take the time to sit with colleagues and talk about these emotions before they negatively impact their work, personal relationships, and families. In the article I wrote, I encourage hospital leaders to organize opportunities for doctors and nurses to do so and provide the psychologists and psychiatrists skilled in leading the conversations. I hope, given this research, now they will take action and move forward quickly and effectively. Jeremy, before I read about this research, I was very aware of the sense of moral injury that doctors feel when they find themselves in situations where they can't provide the best medical care due to unachievable demands and bureaucratic roadblocks. And I know how angry healthcare providers have been about the lack of protective gear they were given early in the pandemic but I wasn't as cognizant of clinicians feeling personally betrayed by patients who don't take the steps needed to protect their health. As a patient, do you ever think about how your actions will impact your doctors? Robbie, that's a difficult question to answer. I was raised to always be kind and polite to people and I would never be rude to a healthcare provider intentionally or intentionally doing anything to negatively impact a doctor. I don't think anyone necessarily was ever or is ever intentionally doing anything to negatively impact their doctors. Um, patients are human. They can be lazy, rude, stubborn, not have the best uh, access to accurate information, et cetera. I feel awful that uh, some of the doctors felt betrayed and I feel it kind of goes both ways. On one hand, it sucks, but doctors understand that patients don't always have their own best health interests in mind and often ignore doctors' advice. This could be around COVID, smoking, terrible diet, no exercise, et cetera. And on the other hand, I think many patients need to be better about listening to their physician and treating them with respect. Their physician is going to have much, much, much more access to and an understanding of medical information than the patient themselves. Robbie, as schools increase in-person learning, what are we learning about the mental health issues COVID-19 created for teenagers? 
Unfortunately, Jeremy, the past two years have not been kind to teenagers. According to a CDC survey of 7,700 high school students, there's been an increase in drug and alcohol use and a major rise in mental health issues. Prolonged social isolation, the negative impact of social media on teenagers' esteem, the current economic uncertainty, and the rising rates of abuse have all been identified as contributing factors. On top of those stressors is the dysfunctional mental health system in the United States with a rapidly growing problem with access. During the pandemic, we saw a sharp rise in teenagers going to the ER, having tried to harm themselves. There's no question that not only are the mental health issues becoming worse, there will be consequences for decades and likely generations to come. Why are so many elected officials getting COVID-19? This is an important question and challenge that's forcing elected officials to figure out what they will do when, rather than if they become infected. As we mentioned, Vice President Harris is the latest individual and her announcement comes shortly after two cabinet members, two members of Congress and a top aide to the vice president all tested positive for the coronavirus after the highly attended white tie and gowns gridiron club dinner in Washington, DC that was held a couple of weeks prior. Although all the attendees at the event had to show proof of vaccination, masks and same day COVID testing was not required. And we'll have to see what happens after the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Let me offer three observations. The first is that these government jobs require being in close contact with large numbers of people every day. And with the growing transmissibility of the virus, spread is almost inevitable without extreme precautions. The second is that in each of these cases, the disease was mild, often asymptomatic, more similar to a mild cold than a life-threatening illness. As such, the danger is far less given that all of the individuals have been vaccinated and most boosted. And finally, the reason we hear so much about this problem is the intense testing being done multiple times per week for everyone who comes in contact with the president. If all Americans were tested as often, we'd likely see the case count be many times higher than it is reported to be today. Jeremy, these are the facts, but what to do about them? That, of course, is less clear. On one hand, the lack of severe medical problems experienced by those who develop COVID may make some people accept this as simply the realities of the job and not a major risk to the individuals or the country. On the other hand, with a war raging in Ukraine, inflation soaring at home, and the president meeting with cabinet and elected officials on a frequent basis, the rapid spread of the virus has the beginnings of a John Grissom novel, and distractions are possible with theoretical twists of fate. Rebbe, our good and interesting news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good and interesting this week? Piece of good news relative to health overall is that researchers writing in The Lancet, which is a highly respected medical journal, have shown that fully following the 10,000 step rule isn't needed to reduce overall mortality rates. Far fewer steps will suffice. In their study, death rates declined by 50% for adults 60 and over who walked 7,000 steps, not 10,000, a far more achievable goal. And for young individuals, 
9,000 rather than the 10,000 steps was calculated to be the number required for maximal benefit. Researchers found that even at 5,000 steps for older individuals and 7,000 steps for younger ones, mortality declined by 40%. In fact, mortality was reduced for older individuals even when they walked only 3,000 steps per day. With spring arriving in almost all areas of the country, it's a great time to maximize health and prepare people's bodies for what's may come next to the pandemic. As the lead investigator of the study said, walking benefits nearly every cell in the body, strengthening your heart, increasing bone density, relaxing your mind, building muscles, and diminishing pain. Calculating steps is inexpensive. Smartphone apps already have them built in, and a $10 plastic pedometer is readily available for anyone who doesn't want to carry the phone when they walk outside. Remember, the time to get your body ready for the next pandemic is now, not when it arrives. Just out of curiosity, where did the 10,000-step rule originate? Jeremy, it can be traced back to the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. According to the BBC, a Japanese company marketed a pedometer that they called Mamkai, which roughly translates into 10,000-step meter according to this BBC report. And like the 10,000 hour rule that has been said to be required to master a task, round numbers stick in people's mind. They're approximations that over time take on a life of their own. Having said that, it's important to remember that it's not that these 10,000 hour and 10,000 step rules are wrong or not helpful. They are directionally correct and a helpful guide. And the closer that we can come to them, the better our outcomes and performance is likely to be. Robbie, listeners continue to thank us for focusing on the broader issues of healthcare and bringing the same honest analysis in these areas as we do when it comes to coronavirus. What can we tell them? Here the news, Jeremy, isn't very good. Over the past two years, life expectancy in the US has decreased by 2.26 years, while in peer economic countries, the change has been a net gain of 0.28 years. That's over two and a half years of difference, resulting in the US now lagging these peer countries by a total of five years. And even more disturbing was the magnitude of the decline for Hispanic and Black populations that are already were experiencing healthcare disparities. And another negative statistic recently published was that the US has today the highest rate of avoidable deaths among women and the highest maternal mortality rates among the world's industrialized nations. Per 100,000 women, the US has 198 avoidable deaths. The United Kingdom is second at 146, and countries like Switzerland and France are much lower at 90 and 99, respectively, half of the avoidable deaths in the United States. And when it comes to maternity deaths, the US is terrible. For 100,000 births, our mortality is 24. The United Kingdom is second, and they're at only seven. Germany has three deaths for 100,000 births, or one eighth of the US. 
And once again, when you break the data down by race, black women have a mortality, 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births versus 19 for Hispanic women and 18 for white women. Paternal mortality is an embarrassment and an ongoing crisis in the United States. Jeremy, as a patient, how do you feel when you hear about how poor clinical outcomes are in the United States? Do you believe that most Americans understand how much worse our country's health outcomes are compared to other nations? And it doesn't matter whether we look at life expectancy, maternal mortality, or avoidable deaths, we are at the bottom. Robbie, when I first heard that our outcomes were so poor in the US, it was hard to believe. My thoughts were that, you know, we have the most expensive healthcare in the world, so it has to be the best, right? I mean, this is America, the wealthiest and most technologically advanced country in the world. How can it not be the best? But once you get over that disbelief about how poor our outcomes are, it's actually pretty upsetting. Why is it so expensive if it's not better? Honestly, it's infuriating that Americans spend such a large percentage on their yearly income on healthcare-related costs, and we're not getting drastically better care. With the memory of the pandemic, how it was handled, the economic and mental health issues caused by it, rising healthcare costs and record inflation, I actually expect healthcare to once again be one of the hottest issues when it comes to the upcoming midterm elections. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I'll be publishing an article in Forbes next week on what is happening in our country relative to COVID and people's reaction to the current Omicron variant. When I look back at this pandemic, the first year was a time of fear and panic. We had few therapeutics and vaccines looked to be years away. Year two was one of uncertainty as vaccines appeared to offer protection, but no one could be certain of the long-term risks. People hoped we'd achieve herd immunity, but when was unclear. Now we're in year three. And what I see is people are becoming comfortable. They believe the worst is over. And they've accepted the fact that this virus isn't going away. It's gonna be endemic, similar to the flu. They know that it won't disappear, but they also think the risks of severe infection or death is very low. The data show that the majority of Americans have already had the disease and are continuing to produce circulating antibodies. Overall, most Americans, rather than seeing COVID-19 as a life-threatening problem, they perceive it as an annoyance, sick for a few days, but not likely to lead to hospitalization or death. They recognize that there are some people, particularly older individuals with chronic disease and those receiving chemotherapy or medicines to prevent transplant rejection, that they remain at risk from COVID. But they also know that these same groups of individuals have life-threatening risks from the flu. The medical science says that as a nation, we should be more cautious than most Americans currently are. The people are saying, I can't live with these restrictions for the rest of my life. And now is as good a time as any to put them behind us. In many ways, Americans approach risk avoidance from COVID like they do driving on wet streets. 
They know they should change their behavior to reduce their risk, but they choose not to do so. When they do a risk-benefit analysis, it tilts to less, not more caution at this phase of the COVID pandemic. Jeremy, regardless of what the CDC says or Dr. Fauci recommends, Americans are moving on from the fear and social distancing of the past. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.